I invite you all to open your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Taking a little break from the Gospel of John this morning as our pastor is away on vacation. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 5, specifically verses 6 through 11. Before we read the text and pray and ask for the Spirit's help and guidance for this text, I must emphasize to you all that what we are about to be looking at is a monumental portion of Scripture. But in order to display the importance and the magnitude of the text, we need to understand how Paul has arrived to this section, Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. Really, if I were to sum it up in a few sentences, it would be this. In chapters 1 through 4 of the book of Romans, Paul thus far has laid out the gospel to us clearly. In many different facets, many different angles, shedding light on it in different areas. The gospel has been clearly portrayed. He has expounded on, also with that, the wrath of God that is revealed to all of those who do not believe and obey the gospel. And then, at the end of chapter 3, And all through chapter 4, Paul expounds again on the gospel. Specifically, how one can be made right with a holy God. And that is by justification through faith alone in Christ. What you need to see everything before chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, as... One giant crescendo, if you will. Everything before what we are about to look at this morning is one giant buildup of momentum to what Paul is about to tell us. It is all amounting, crescendoing to magnify God's work in salvation. Glorious truth. So let's read the text. Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were being reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. Father, as we come to your word, 
And as we often pray, so we pray again. Would you soften our hearts that we may receive what you have divinely given us? By your spirit, would you cause us to know you more intimately? That you would be come even sweeter to us? That your glory would be magnified? And that we would be forever changed by it? We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. A very old Puritan, maybe one that's not so well known to you, by the name of John Boys, an English Puritan, when speaking of the love with which God has for his children, said this, quote, The love of God is like a sea, into which the man is cast. He can neither see the bank nor Feel the bottom. The love of God is like a sea into which the man is cast, can't even begin to see the shore, can't even begin to feel the bottom. Here in Romans 5, verses 6 through 11, we are cast into that very sea. A sea that is so vast it cannot be measured a sea that is so deep the depths will never be able to be fully plumbed. That is the love of God. It's divine love. That is the love we are going to be looking at this morning. It's not worldly love. Think about that for a second. What characterizes What the world says love is. Worldly love is selfish, subject to change, shallow, superficial, untrustworthy, unfaithful, hateful, superficial. Beloved, the love we are looking at this morning is completely opposite of the world's love. It is divine love. It is the love with which God has loved you and I for those that are in Christ Jesus. The love of God is selfless. It is pure. It is unbounded. It is constant. It never changes. It is fully trustworthy. It is faithful. It is unwavering and it is eternal. God's love for you and I, beloved, cannot change because our God does not change. And so therefore the love that he shows us can never change. And here in Romans 5 verses 6 through 11, Paul explores the heights and the depths of God's love for us, which finds its pinnacle at the glorious cross of Christ. We'll see that this morning. I entreat you to listen. I entreat you to follow along as we look at this text, which God 
has purposefully for this time given us. Beloved, without this text, we would be left not knowing the depths and the heights of the greatness of God's love. This text makes known to us the sweetness of God's love. The love which he has for his children. And my prayer has been that this would serve as a reminder to you what God has done for you. It doesn't matter what stage you are at in your Christian walk. You and I need to know how God loves us. We need to be reminded of the glorious gospel every day. It never needs to get old to you. How can it? As John Boy says, it is love into which when we are cast, we can't even see the bank. We can't even feel the bottom because it is so vast, unmeasured. You and I will never come to a place where we fully are able to comprehend all that God has done for us. So therefore, we need to be ever so reminded of the love with which God has loved you and I. And today I want us to look at six truths of God's love. It should be a comfort and balm to our soul. It should cause us to boast in and rest in what God has done for you and for I. It should cause us to worship him with the highest praise. So the first truth I want to remind you of, beloved, is this, is that God's love is unconditional. If you're taking notes, God's love is unconditional. Paul says in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's one amazing, incomprehensible truth about God's love is that it is unconditional. What does that mean? If his love was conditional, that means we would have to maintain God's love for us. But you and I cannot do that. For his love, if his love was conditional, excuse me, You and I would have to meet certain standards to attain that love. Let me remind you that God's standard is perfection. God's standard is you must be completely holy and righteous as he is. And we fall so woefully short of that. But praise be to God that the love he has for us is unconditional. The text doesn't say when we were right, when we were doing good, when we were perfect, when we were righteous, Christ died for us. No, if that was the case, then there would be no need for Christ's death. But while we were weak, while we were ungodly, Christ came and died. What does that look like? I mean, we all have an idea of that. We all understand, okay, I get I'm not good. I get I'm not righteous, but what does that look like? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3. If you want to turn there in your Bible to Romans 3. 
say that we were weak and ungodly, Paul is right in that. But what does he mean by that? He means this. Romans 3, starting in verse 9, Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we already charge that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So it doesn't matter who you are. You're either in Christ or out of Christ. You're either in bondage and enslaved to your sin or you're free from that sin. And before Christ, you and I were all enslaved to that sin. As it is written, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. This is who you and I were before we came to Christ. Completely and totally in and of ourselves unrighteous. That means we were incapable of doing anything good. And because we are completely and totally unrighteous, all these consequent charges... Thirteen charges against us fall on our account. Look what he says. Because we are unrighteous, verse 11, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Terrifying charges, are they not? But this is who anybody is who is not in Christ. This is who we all were before we came to Christ. We were completely and totally unrighteous. Therefore, we we didn't seek God. In fact, we were running 180 degrees in the opposite direction. We didn't do anything good. We turned aside from God, becoming worthless. All we did was lie. Our mouths were only full of deceit and bitterness. Destruction and misery was the only path we knew. We knew no peace. There was no fear of God. Paul expounds on this a little bit more in Ephesians chapter 2. You don't have to turn there unless you want to, but Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through Three, hopefully a familiar portion of Scripture to you. Paul tells us, describes who we were before Christ. He tells us, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and by nature were children of wrath, even as the rest. This is who we were. There is no half-alive, half-dead person 
you're either fully alive by the grace of God in Christ or you are completely dead in your sins. And as Steve Lawson has famously said, what is the only thing a dead man can do? Stink. He cannot do anything good. He is not righteous on his own. Rather, he followed or she followed the lust of their flesh, the lust of their minds, and were by nature children of wrath, following the course of this world under the influence of Satan. That's what the Word of God says. Dead, completely dead. But it was at this time, Paul says, that when we were weak and ungodly, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, while we were dead in our sins, while we were unrighteous, while we were constantly and ever continually rebelling against God, Christ died for us. There was nothing in of us that made us lovely, that made God said, yes, that person's doing pretty good. I'll, 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 I'll die for them. No. It was at our worst. It was when you and I were dead in our sins and our transgressions that Christ died for us. Died for the ungodly. His love is unconditional. We, 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 couldn't, we couldn't even put ourselves in a position to be saved. Do you realize that? None of us can. None of us can put ourselves in a position to come to Christ. Christ must come to us, and He did. Not when we were good, not when we were righteous. No, we're completely unrighteous, completely unholy. But it was at that time, while we were weak and ungodly, Christ died for us. God's love is unconditional. Secondly, God's love came at the right time. Again, look at verse 6. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Everything that happens, God has ordained. He has ordained a time for all things to happen. It's what we read in this, this morning from Psalm 48. It's what we read in the scriptures. It's that God has a perfect appointed time for all things. And at the right time, He sent Christ to die for us. Paul in Galatians 4.4 4 says this, but when the fullness of time came, or at the right time, at God's appointed time, when He had ordained it to happen, God for, sent forth His Son to be born of a virgin, to be born under the law so that He might fulfill it. Or First Peter chapter 1, verse 20. That he, being Christ, was foreknown 
before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Beloved, Christ came at the right time. It didn't just happen randomly. But notice, again, the the greatness of God's love here. The right time was not when you and I were doing good. The right time was when we were totally depraved. Not wanting God. Not seeking Him. But living completely contrary to His Word. He came and died. The time Christ came was God's appointed time for Him to come. When we were at our worst. Think about that. Chew on that. Gnaw on that for a moment. If you were going to do something for somebody, let alone die for them, when, when would be the time to do that? When they love you? No. Yes. That's what we all would say, right? If I'm going to do something for somebody, it's easiest to do that thing for them when they like me. When we're buddies, when we're cool, when we're tight, when we're friends. If you were going to do something for somebody, let alone die for them, would you die for them when they were at their worst or their best? When they loved you or or hated you? And all of us in our flesh would say, yeah, when, when they're at their best, when they're doing something for me. When I can get something out of them. Beloved, God doesn't need you or I. He's not dependent upon us. He doesn't need you. You, you, you lived a life that only, only hated Him. But yet, that was the right time. For God to send Christ to die for you. Only one would hardly die for a righteous man. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. God's love is not only conditional and not only come came at the right time. But verse 7, look at this. Paul says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. Is it possible that someone may die for a truly good person? For a righteous person? Paul's saying maybe. It's possible. Hardly. I mean, there's a slight chance for a righteous person. I mean, hardly. Yes, it is possible. Maybe, Paul says, perhaps someone might die for a good person. There's a slim chance, but yeah, it's, it's possible. I mean, we might die for our children. We might die for our spouse. But for an evil person? No. But what you need to see here, beloved, is that you and I are neither good or righteous. For the good or righteous person, Paul is saying, somebody might die for them. But you and I are neither good nor righteous, yet Christ died. 
What an astounding truth that is. His love is unconditional. It came to us at the right time. And the right time, according to God, is when you and I were dead in our sins. When you and I were at our worst. I mean, someone might die for someone who who does a lot of good. We might die for our spouse. But what about a person who hates you? What about a person who has lived a total life of rebellion against you? That's who we were before we came to Christ. That's who we were, yet Christ died. Although one, perhaps, may die for a good person, for a righteous person, you and I are neither of those things. Paul here is just expounding on the love of God. Look at what he says in verse 8. Though you and I would never die for a good or righteous person, maybe, but for an evil person, no, Look what Paul says about God's love. But God, as Daniel said earlier, it's the two greatest words in Scripture, but God. At our vilest, at our worst, Christ died. But God demonstrates His own love toward you and I, toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love. We didn't demonstrate love towards him. So then, okay, I'm going to demonstrate love towards you. No, we only demonstrated sin and rebellion and hate. Unholiness, unrighteousness. But it was at that right time, God's time, that he demonstrated his love toward us by sending Christ to die for us. This is divine love. This is not human love, but divine love. Incredible. While we rebelled against God and hated Him, Christ died for you and I. What a demonstration of God's love. This is the most supreme act of love known to mankind. Nothing can even begin to rival the love God has for us. The love that was demonstrated, that was shed abroad to you and I by Christ coming to die for us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9-10, through 10, the Apostle John writes, By this, the love of God was manifested in us, That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. This is love, John says. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He doesn't love us because we loved Him. We hated Him. We are able to love Him because He first loved us. Us. That is love according to God. That while you and I, beloved, were at our worst, He sent forth His only Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Does that not humble you? Does that not just make you ooze joy? 
Have you ever stopped to try and, and comprehend really what it took for God to save you and I? It didn't just take a man. It took the God-man. God Himself. As Josh said earlier, His condescension in taking on our flesh. Being made in the likeness of man, He lived amongst sinners. He lived and dined with those who hated Him. He came to His own, as the Apostle John says in John 1, and the, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own and, the, and His own hated Him. They didn't know Him. But He came and fulfilled all righteousness that God requires of us. Paid the penalty that you and I deserve. What an amazing love. His love towards sinners is unconditional. There, there's nothing we can do to merit that love. We can't put, our, put ourselves in a condition to be loved, but it's just freely shown to sinners. God delights in that. Joyfully sent His Son. God's love is not only conditional, is not, excuse me, is not only unconditional, and not only came at the right time, but thirdly, God's love justifies us. Look at verse 9. Much more than Paul says, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Again, God's love is shown the pinnacle, the Mount Everest, the top, the supreme act of God's love was shown to us through the death of His Son. Now let's remind ourselves, why did Christ have to die? Because that is what is required for sin. A payment is required for sin. God has a righteous standard, and His righteous standard is Himself. It is perfection. And anything below that standard desires, or excuse me, incurs just punishment. Whether it be one sin, it doesn't matter. No matter how big or small you think the sin is, even if it was just one sin, that sin incurs Divine judgment. A divine payment that is so great it would take eternity in hell. And that payment would still be never paid in full. That debt would never be, excuse me, fulfilled. But Christ paid in full the payment of the sins of all who would ever come and believe in Him. It took the violent death of Christ and the shedding of His blood. Where you and I have an incomprehensible debt we owe to God, one that would take 
eternity in hell to pay for it. Christ steps in and pays the debt you and I owe to God in full. Justifies us by the shedding of Christ's blood. What does that mean to be justified? Think about that for a moment. It's courtroom language. It means to be made right. Imagine yourself in an earthly court. And you have a debt so big, it'll take a lifetime, an eternity to resolve that debt, to be made right. The judge hands down the verdict because the judge is just and he must carry out justice. But yet there is one who comes in and takes your place and says, I will pay that payment in full. And that person justifies you because he has paid your payment in full. That is what Christ has done for you and I. In the highest courtroom, the cosmic courtroom of heaven, God's courtroom, you and I are all guilty. Before Christ, you and I are all Romans 3, 9 through 18, and Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. In God's courtroom, there is no evidence unknown, no evidence dismissed. All is laid bare before God. Every evil thought, evil deed, every idle word, everything you didn't do but should have done is all taken into account. And again, the cost is so high that there must be, there cannot not be punishment. It'll take eternity in hell. But Christ stepped in at the right time and died for you and I. Christ stepped in, having fulfilled all righteousness that is required by God through His perfect life. He lived fulfilling that righteous requirement for you, knowing that one day He would pay for your sins knowing that one day the wrath of His Father would be poured out on Him for you to satisfy God's wrath. God accepts nothing less than absolute perfection. And Christ is perfection. And so having fulfilled the righteous requirement that is required of us, He steps in our place and pays the penalty for all who would ever believe in Him in full. It took the death of Jesus, God Himself, to justify us, to make us right before Him. What a lovely truth. 
A lot of people say they have faith. Well, then what is your faith in? Your faith is only as good as the object it is in. That is why our faith must be in Christ, because He is the greatest. That is why our faith is in what He did. What He said He is doing and what He says He will do. That is why Christ, His life, His death, His blood is so precious to us. Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. We are justified by Christ's blood. You might be saying, well, I I thought Paul said in the end of Romans 3 and all through 4 that we are justified by faith. Yes, you are right. We are justified by faith. But it is what our faith is in that enables our justification. Paul here is not contradicting himself. The phrase here, Paul uses that we are justified by his blood encapsulates not just the bodily fluid that Christ shed, yes, that is important, but rather the whole imperfect atonement that Christ provided. Amazing, marvelous, that Christ through his Death, His full atoning work through His life and death, paid in full for every sin that you and I would ever commit. Having all the wrath poured on Him, there is now no wrath for you or I. Christ absorbed it all. Again, going back to 1 John 4.10, the Apostle John writes, Christ was the propitiation for our sins. How often do you hear that word used every day? Unless you're in God's word or listening to a, you know, a sermon by John MacArthur, maybe, perhaps, but in normal, common, everyday vernacular, we don't use that word propitiation. What does that mean? Let me illustrate it to you this way. It's like a football game where... The team that is on the defense sends one of their biggest guys. Imagine that's the penalty you and I deserve. Some big guy, 6'4", 350, all muscle, coming at you. You're the, you're the quarterback, so to speak, shaking in your shoes. And you see that penalty coming towards you. And one steps in the way to block him and propitiates the wrath from that 6'4", 350, all-muscle dude. The one who stepped in between propitiated the wrath from the one running towards you. Silly example, but you understand the illustration much more on a divine cosmic scale. The wrath of God was coming for you and I. As Charles Spurgeon once said, you and I were all dangling over the pit of hell, holding on to a solitary plank, and the plank is rotten. In other words, the the plank is about to break. We are all about to fall into God's righteous and just judgment, his wrath. But Christ stepped in between at the right time, unconditionally, 
and paid the debt in full, absorbing all of God's wrath so that there is no more wrath for you or for me. There is no more charges laid against you and I because all the charges were laid on the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's love is not only unconditional, it did not just come at the right time, it not only justified us, but God's love saves us. Again, verse 9, much more than Paul says, Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. God's love does not just stop at justification, but future salvation from God's wrath. God's love for us is whole. It covers everything. It is timeless. There is no wrath for us now. There will be no wrath for us in the future. We shall be saved. The phrase there is in the future indicative, meaning this will happen. It's it's not going to change. There's nothing that can alter this truth. You shall be saved from God's wrath. Praise God. And I love the way he opens up verse 9. Look at what he says. Much more than. Paul here is making an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has poured all his wrath out on his son, then how can there be any wrath for you? There is no more wrath for you or I, for those who are in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. I hear so much today people talking about their greatest need. My greatest need is a vaccine. My greatest need is justice. You don't want justice. Our greatest need is a new president. No, it's not. Your greatest need is your sin. Are you delivered from it? Have you been justified? Have you been freed from your sin? Your greatest need was to have your sin wiped clean. And if you were in Christ, beloved, your greatest need was taken care of at the glorious cross of Christ. And there is no more wrath for you. Because Jesus paid it all. Do you understand? We sing that all the time. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. All the wrath you and I surmounted by the sinful lives we lived was all paid for by Christ. Jesus paid it all. So therefore, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God that is coming Soon, we don't have to worry about. Because Christ absorbed all that wrath for you and I on the cross. God's love is unconditional. It came at the right time. It justifies us. It saves us from future wrath. And fifthly, 
God's love reconciles us. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, or excuse, yes, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God's love reconciles us. But again, notice here how Paul is hitting on what we were before we came to Christ. In verse 6, we were weak and ungodly. Verse 7 and 8, we are unrighteous, not good. We are rebellious sinners. And then verse 10, he just adds on another layer. We were enemies of God. Paul's not mincing words here. He's purposefully hitting on the fact that you and I were nothing. That we are the worst. Weak, hopeless, ungodly, dead in our sins, rebellious sinners. In verse 10, enemies. Now Paul here is just giving us the honest truth. But hear me, it's not to beat you down, though it should be humbling to us but rather to just further glorify and magnify the grace that is found in Christ and his love for us to exalt and make even brighter the Son, the Lord Jesus. Our Lord's love for us did not just come at the right time unconditionally. It didn't just justify and save us, but it also reconciles us. What does that mean? It's a beautiful word. It means to bring together. It comes from a Greek word, katalaso. The Greek comes from a word which means to exchange. Literally speaking, from an enemy to a friend. From a broken, lost, and dead sinner to a child of God. That is the great exchange that has taken place for those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. This is how God reconciled us. Now having been justified by the work of his son, we get all of Christ's perfect life credited to our account. If all we had was the death of Christ and no righteousness added to our account, then our spiritual bank account would be at zero. Do you understand? God has a righteous requirement. The requirement's up here. The balance is at zero. You and I had a debt we could never pay. We are negative. Christ's death justifies us, bringing our balance to zero, But then his fulfilling of the law, his fulfilling of the righteousness is credited to our account positively so that we are able to stand holy and blameless before God himself. That is why the life of Christ is so precious. If all it took was the death of Christ, then we wouldn't need his life. But we so desperately need his life. And that is how he reconciles us. We need a positive alien righteousness added to our account. And that is what happens upon salvation. Having been justified, 
We have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. So that when God sees you, He doesn't see you, but He sees His Son. What a marvelous truth that is. And how does God see His Son? Perfect, holy, blameless. Does He love His Son? Yes, he does. Him and his son are one. Christ on the cross took on our sin and gave us his righteousness. For we are saved, Paul says, by his life. And his perfect life is credited to our account So that God not only looks at us as if we're sinless now, but he looks at us as if we only perfectly and perpetually kept his law, just as Christ did in his passive and active obedience. Colossians chapter 1, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Colossians 1, starting in verse 19, Paul says, For in him that is Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, But now he has reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him, God Almighty, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Though we were formerly dead and alienated and hostile towards God, Christ's death reconciled us to God so that we are able to stand before him holy and blameless, beyond reproach, meaning nobody can say, oh, well, he did this and she did that. There is none of that because, again, Jesus paid it all. On the cross, as one beloved pastor said, God treated Christ as if he lived your life so that he could treat us, his sheep, as if we lived Christ's life. Absolute perfection. This is the great reconciliation or exchange, if you will, that took place. His righteousness for our sins. And now we are no longer alienated, hostile, dead in our sins, but we are His friends. We are His beloved children. 1 John 3, 1, John writes, See what manner of love God has shown to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. By anything you've done? No. But all because of what God has done. See what love has been shed abroad to us. I mean, try to comprehend that, that you and I should be called children of God. And so we are. And what has enabled that to happen, this reconciliation to happen, is Christ's death for 
you. Just as Paul did in verse 9, he does again in verse 10. Much more. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Again, it's another classic Pauline argument from the greater to the lesser. And to illustrate what Paul is saying, let me ask it to you this way. Which is harder, to save an enemy or to love a child? (laughs) Love a child! Or, excuse me, no, to save an enemy. I got it flipped. Which is harder, to save an enemy? What's easier, to love a child? And that's what Paul is arguing. Get this. Understand it. Grasp it. If God has done the hardest thing, which was reconciling wretched, rebellious haters, sinners against him to himself, if God has done the harder thing, which is to save us when we were enemies and haters of him, is it really that hard for him to keep us as we are now his children? No. It's not hard to love a child, your own. One you have given up everything for and sacrificed so much more. Do you understand? Even us being sinful, understand what it's like to love a child. And to sacrifice for them. Much more is is God's love for us. That's incomprehensible. We were, we were enemies. We were alienated and hostile towards God. Yet at the right time, he came and died for us, justified us, saved us, reconciled us to himself. If God has done the harder thing, which is to save you in your hardened, rebellious heart, now that you are his child, do you not think he can do the lesser thing, which is keep you? Yes, he can. And and that grip he has on his sheep, on his children, never loosens. Praise God. As As one commentator said, it is harder to save an enemy than it is to keep a son. To keep a son, of course. Of course I'm gonna keep that child. That that that's my son. That's my child. And if God has saved you, those who are broken in spirit, those who are tired of their sin and see their need for a Savior, those of you who are beleaguered with sin, He can do the lesser thing, the easy thing. And that is keep you. Which is the sixth truth of God's love. He not only justifies us, saves us. His love is not only conditional, unconditional. His love not only came at the right time, but his love keeps us. Look at verse 10 B. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That phrase there, we shall be saved, means to be kept safe from harm. 
Literally, if it, if it came out in English the way it is in the Greek, it would come out this way. Be being kept safe. We are constantly and continually kept, continually saved by God. How? Paul tells us by his life. Every other religion in the world, their savior is dead. Ours is alive. And sits right now at the right hand of God, interceding for you. Beloved, a dead savior cannot save, but ours is alive. He not only paid the debt in full on the cross, And died the death you and I should have. But he rose again on the third day. And now lives to intercede for his sheep. And continually keeps them. It is by his life that we are saved. He foreordained your salvation. He planned and executed your salvation. And that salvation is seen to the very end till you take your very last breath on and through eternity eternity because of Christ's life. Astounding. Is it not? So what? You might be saying, "So, so what's the point? Here's the point from beginning to end. Salvation is all an act of God. This is the gospel that Christ came and lived the perfect life you and I can never live and pay the debt that we can never pay and rose again. That's the point. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. That's the point. It's all about what God has done. Not anything you and I have done. Verses 6 through 10, where does it say you and I did anything? Nowhere. Oh, the greatness of God's love He has for us. It's all Him. It's all Him. It's all about what He has done, not what you and I can do. Because we can do nothing. Our righteousness, as you know, is nothing but filthy rags. It's no good. You cannot do anything to merit or earn God's love for you. It has already been demonstrated to you and shed abroad to you by Christ coming and dying on the cross for you. Marvelous. What else is there to say? I think so often we can get discouraged because we look at our lives and we see still how woefully short we fall. Maybe because of sins in the past or sins in the previous week or maybe sins this morning. Whatever load you bear, I don't know, but God knows. And we question Whether or not God loves me. I still sin greatly. God, how can you love me, beloved? Don't ever question God's love for you. If you ever question it, 
Look to the cross. Look to Christ and what he has done. Everything in verses 6 through 10. There is nothing you can do to improve upon the love that has already been shown to you by Christ and his death on the cross for you. He paid it all. Stop looking to you and look to the Lord Jesus. This love, this divine love is an everlasting love. It's eternal. It cannot change. Christ died. God demonstrates. God reconciles. God justifies. God saves. And God keeps. Stop trying to maintain your salvation. It's already been maintained. And it's perfectly maintained by Christ. Because of what He did for you. Do you see how personal it is? How personal Paul makes it? Christ died for us. His atoning work was accomplished for us. Jesus did not die to purchase a potential salvation. Do you understand? He did not die and give his life. Well, I I hope somebody comes. Silly. No, he actually personally died for all of those who would ever believe in him, for all of those who would ever cry out in faith and repentance for salvation. He did not die just, oh, we'll just kind of see who comes. No, he went to the cross with you in mind, with his sins on his shoulders, accomplishing redemption for you, knowing that that redemption would be applied to you upon faith in him. Incredible. Rest in that. Relish in that. Because again, God sees you now as he sees his son. You may say, well, I don't feel this way in my heart. No. Tell your heart to hush up and listen to the word of God. He loves you, beloved, with an everlasting love. You may say, well, I'm still not good enough. Yes, yes, you're right. Join the club. You'll never be good enough. But there is one who was, who was perfect. That is Christ. Continue to trust in him. He was so perfect, so good that his life and blood covers all the sins of all who believe in him. Continue to look to Christ. God is for you. And this love with which we have looked at this morning, you can't be separated from it. If Christ has determined to show his love towards you, There's no stopping that love from being taken away from you. Romans 8, 31 through 34, Paul says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is 
He who died, yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Amazing. Paul here just continues later on in chapter 8 and expounds on the love with which we have looked at today. No one can bring a charge against you because all your charges were laid on Jesus. No one can condemn you because Christ stood in your place. And his atoning work was validated by the resurrection. That's what Paul says, yes, rather, who was raised. And now he intercedes for us. Amazing. God's love that he has for his sinners, for those who, whom he died to save for his sheep. Christ more willingly died for you than you greedily sinned against him. Rest in that. The love of God that he has for you is more powerful than your sinning. So much more. It came at the right time. It was unconditional. Justified you. It saved you. It's continually saving you as you live this life. Saves you from future wrath, wrath and keeps you on and through eternity. This is the love of God that he has for you. So, so what's our response? Verse 11. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We boast in, we glory in, we rejoice in, not what we have done, but everything God has done for us. Amen? This love God has shown us is like the hymn writer says, it is love so amazing Love so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. This is the love with which God has loved us, and nothing can change it. Incredible. Going back to that quote, the love of God is like a sea into which the man is cast. He neither sees the bank nor feels the bottom. We've been in that sea, and I feel like I've just comprehended a small cup of it. Amazing truth. Never let that go. If you are in Christ today, boast in God. Rejoice in the love with which he has loved you. You were predetermined to be saved. You were saved. You're being saved and you will be saved from future wrath and spend eternity thanking the Father for what he has done. If you are not in Christ I entreat you to come to him this day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that are in it. We thank you for the love with which you have unconditionally and freely loved us with. We... We have just been brought to the heights and the depths and the widths of your love.
and we are just struggling to comprehend it just because it's so magnificent and glorious. Father, help us live a life that is worthy of you. Help us trust in what you have done for us. We can't improve upon or do anything to change it. So help us rest in that. May we go forth and proclaim this love to a lost and dying world who so desperately needs us, who so desperately needs this truth. We love you and we thank you for everything you're doing and what you will do. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.